Hide Hide your kids. kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous Dangerous podcast. podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. If you don't know, just ask your mixologist. What's up, everybody? It's the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel Cheeseman. And, and as always, the Joey to my Chandler. We have Chad Sowash on the line. And we are just giddy to welcome back to the show, Tracy Lovejoy and Shannon Lucas, co-founders of Catalyst Constellations and co-authors of the best-selling book, Move Fast, Break Shit, Burn Out. Ladies, welcome to the podcast again. So great to be so back. excited to be back. Glutton for punishment. <laughs> By the way, for our listeners in the green room, this is, this is interesting. So in our past interviews, you weren't able to see us. On our new platform, you can see us. And Tracy comes in and Chad and I are talking and she goes, wow, Joel, you're smiling. Your voice sounds like you never <laughs> smile. So God bless video. I'm not the, uh, the bad guy that you thought I once was. <laughs> Well, he totally is. He just can smile when he's bad. It's okay. It's okay. So ladies, give us, again, for listeners who haven't listened to the other episodes, give us a a little Twitter bio about yourself, not about the business, anything like that, just about you. Hi, my name's Shannon. I'm a catalyst, recovering catalyst. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I've spent the last 20 years in large tech organizations, um, creating my own ventures and leading emerging business and innovation in some of the world's largest companies like Vodafone, Microsoft, Ericsson, and Cisco. And now I'm the happy co-CEO with Tracy Lovejoy, building the Catalyst movement. So happy. There was emphasis on happy. It's like you're overcompensating here. What's going on? (laughs) Tracy, Tracy. We really are happy. Totally happy. My Twitter bio, Catalyst, co-CEO, researcher, executive coach, mom of two human children and five frozzy children. Frozzy? <laughs> fuzzy. F- Farzy, fuzzy. Fuzzy. Jeez. <laughs> Is like Fozzie Bear? Fro- we got Frozzy. Yeah. Have the Fozzie. That's more my husband. He is a little on the, the bear Tracy's side. Tracy's got a lot going on. I have six real children and two fuzzy. <laughs> so Shannon, six. Six kids? My God. Six kids, two six fr- two boys. babies, six boys. Wow. Okay, so how old's the youngest? I, I've got seven. Seven, okay. And the oldest? Just got married uh, in Melbourne, Australia a couple weeks ago. He's 28. Very nice. Now, that's a hell of a span right there. Yeah, my husband brought five to the party and I brought one, so... <laughs> So, Joel, I, I threw this topic out to you around, uh, you know, women in leadership leaving their posts. And I thought, you know, we, we need to get a couple of strong females who actually can understand this. We can't. We're just dumb dudes uh, yeah. on on the show. And then your response was, was what? What's this article about? <laughs> when it, was that when I said, what's the title of this? Chicks that can't hack it in the workforce? Was that... <laughs> Was that our oh cancel God. title? Keep listening, people. Keep listening. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> Push through. <laughs> yes. So we've, we've obviously been seeing much to do about females leaving the workforce, not just leaving the workforce, but getting into leadership positions. And we've been talking on this podcast for almost, what, six years? It's been, shit, it has been six years mm-hmm. about 
getting more diversity into the C-suite, getting into the ranks. Well, that's starting to happen slowly. It's trickling, but it seems like, you know, it's become a more of a revolving door than anything else. So what, what the hell is happening? What are you seeing in the market in, you know, with some of these, some of these articles, what did you, what were you able to extract from some of the studies? I just want to say first, thank you for having this conversation. You're welcome. It's, it's a You're super welcome. important conversation. And, and snarkiness aside, um, it is hard. It's hard to hang sometimes in these large corporate environments as a female exec. So thanks for creating this space. That's what welcome, the space Shannon. is for. So welcome to the space. Now tell us what the hell is going on. As a summary as of, of the topic, to some extent, I'm pointing to the amazing articles that you queued up for us, you know, Chad, in, in talking about this. I think Yacinda stepping down in New Zealand has really created a global discussion point for us. Uh, this is related to also several, you know, key female executives stepping down. And then in last year, in 2022, there was a report put out together by McKinsey and Lenin.org women in work that are looking at the phenomena that are happening. And this is something that you, you know, were pointing to us as well to, to circle this conversation around. In that report, there are good things. And then there are things that are showing that in a lot of ways, we're not seeing changes across the marketplace and, and organizational shifts. So we do see small, I won't call it quite incremental, but we do see small shifts in women in leadership at all levels when you look at the report. Even at the highest level of executive from 2017 to 2022, we do see about a 6% increase of women in those highest positions. I think what really leads to this conversation is a key finding that you do see double the women leaving at the director level than we see for men. And they point to a few key phenomenon that they saw in the study that they relate to that. Uh, one being that it's really emotionally hard to be a woman in the workforce. Shannon and I's way of talking about this is the emotional labor that we have to do. In the report, they talk about microaggressions. They talk about having to defend yourself more as a woman. Can you define microaggression before we talk about it? Because I think uh, a lot of people, that's a new term. Yeah. So it can be, I, actually, I don't know the definition off the top of my head, like in, in perfect. So I can more talk about what it, what it feels Examples. like when we experience it. Yeah. It can be even unconscious statements that will come our way as women or people of color or anyone who's a minority in the moment that diminishes you and your value, right? So it could be, can you move over at the table? It could can, be- Can you get us coffee? Well, yeah, that's a very, <laughs> that's a macro aggression. Can you talk a little <laughs> oh. bit louder? I mean, a little bit softer or, wow, you're, you're so much- you're so emotional, right? Mm. These mm. can be microaggressions that are happening. Uh, another thing that the study talks to, which I think falls into the microaggression category as well, is not being recognized for the role we have in the company, being assumed that we are more junior than we actually are. And so someone walking into a room, perhaps I'm actually senior to this person, but making the assumption because of my gender or my color that I play a role that may be lower on the within the hierarchical chain. So this is a key reason they point to. They also talk about the desire for more flexibility. And so as organizations are moving back to bring people into the workplace, women are leaving jobs saying, I want to go someplace that has, that maintains the flexibility that I've come to really love, both because perhaps I still have a greater role in my home, which statistically is still true, but also because some of those microaggressions and the ways I have to justify my value aren't experienced as much when I'm in a remote work world. And so I can remove myself from some of the things that feel bad and exhausting and the emotional labor if I'm not constantly in the office space. Either either of you, your take on, you know, COVID was brutal, just brutal for women in, in the workforce. Have we recovered at all from 
from the pandemic? Tracy, you're nodding your head. I mean, talk about the lack of progress after COVID or, or, or what's your, your viewpoint on the state of women in the workforce after COVID? Oh, I'm laughing because like I don't think any of us are truly recovered from COVID. And as I see all these organizations that are calling people back, every coaching call that I get to do where someone says, they're, you know, even though it's in my contract, they're starting to challenge me, they might fire me. And it is, people are still exhausted coming out of the pandemic, right? Because we were working more and we were working under harder conditions where it became, especially we work with change makers in the world and change makers have to work through influence across silos. And that's Mm -hmm. actually harder in the virtual world, right? So we are exhausted coming out of, of the pandemic still. Is we women or men and women? I meant more globally as a workforce that just as humans. Yeah, that's what I meant. Shan? I think what one of the things that the pandemic exposed to everybody, and it wasn't felt by everyone the same way prior to the pandemic, is the challenges we have with you know basic access to childcare from an almost infrastructure perspective in the U.S. Now, European companies do this differently, and just because of the way that that you know access to that ends up impacting women's ability to be present and you know do all show up the ways they want to show up in the workplace. If we don't have that infrastructure in place, it disproportionately affects women. The other thing that it disproportionately affects, though, and we saw this because so many places actually folded. There just wasn't great business models with with care is, okay, as a middle-class white woman, I could have my kids in the other room and have them on an iPod. But if I was a frontline worker who didn't have access to healthcare, I couldn't bring them to the places that I was going. And so just the like amount of managing that you had to do around that potentially up to losing your job. And so while we've shed a light on this, I think that it's a like pretty intractable problem in our US society, which is unfortunate because it also impacts men too. There are single dads. They're also trying to, you know, lean in and, and help too. So it's like it impacts everybody. And I think we need to look at some of those structural things underpinning all of this. It seems, at least looking at the report from McKinsey, that there are three major reasons why females are leaving. Number one, there's more hurdles than there are for men. They're overworked not compensated for some of the things they do. We'll talk about that. And then uh, things aren't changing. So to boil it down for me, when I was reading this, it's just that the old boys club still exists and that the change hasn't happened. That's why there's more hurdles. That's why you have to work harder because it's hard to break into the old the, the old boys network. So, I mean, how do we get past this 1950s way of, of working and actually transcend into you know 2023? I think it's interesting. Interesting because when we talk about like systemic prejudice, if you will, it's not like mm-hmm. people are intentionally go- showing up and saying, I want less women in the boardroom or I want less women on the leadership team. As humans, we have a natural predilection to sort of seek out like places that are safe, like for like, all of those things. So I want to sort of put that. And so what it requires is like, a a deeper self-reflection, a deeper self-awareness, a commitment to sort of lean into wanting to help, which requires emotional labor itself. As we were chatting at the beginning, I think one of the problems that we're realizing is that sort of third third wave feminism helped a lot of women sort of lean in, develop the skills, stand in our power, all of the things. I can say as a mother of six boys, (laughs) that what we didn't see after the fact was helping men also lean in to some of like the other traits that might, you know, we, we, as women, we leaned into more masculine traits, the eighties, we saw the big shoulder pads and, you know, trying to like be more man-like, right. Working girl, we can go back to that. But for men, when I was sending my son to kindergarten, I literally cried for weeks because I knew what was going to happen. I knew that his sweet, precious self was going to start to be told that it wasn't okay to have feelings in the classroom, that it wasn't okay to cry, that it wasn't okay to be vulnerable 
that if he showed up that way, even if it wasn't normalized in the classroom, it would happen on the playground. And it did. Right. And so we, we have this legacy now that these women are ready to lean in, but the men have been told that that vulnerability that could be their, their strength in helping to create this change wasn't wanted or desired. It wasn't powerful. So what that leaves then is the women right now to do the emotional labor in the organizational context to help create this change. And that's one of the things that you're referring to. It's this other dimension. Like we show up twice as much supporting other people, trying to cultivate diversity, not just for ourselves, but across. And that comes at a toll because we also have to, as you said, prove ourselves, you know, a a 10X factor that we're capable for the jobs. Not for the same pay either, by the way. Not for the same pay. That's exactly right. How much of it is just learning to speak each other's language? Because I think when you say get in touch with your feminine side, that men automatically think I got to be a big wussy if I want to work with women. (laughs) And I think that's a false premise. And when you talk about you go to the workplace and say, I have to put my masculine hat on and I have to, you know, be bold and interrupt people and and do that. I think telling men like you got to be emotional and cry at work. I don't know if that's the right message. I think it's more... tell me if I'm wrong. It's more about just understanding your language as you guys have worked really hard to understand our language. Where am I right or wrong on that? I think you're, you're right. And I'll, I'll tag back to something Chad said and then bring it back together. Chad, you'd ask the question, you know, if the, if the old boys, the old, the old boys club still exists, how do we come to a different world? I think starting with even shifting from calling it an old boys club is is a starting point. Because when people hear that, it's really easy to create distance from that. And to say, I'm not intentionally part of an old boys club, right? Instead, to begin to frame it as thinking about in any system, someone has power, any system, The Mm -hmm. systems we happen to be talking about, the power is predominantly sitting with older white males in this case, but in other systems, other people have have the predominant power. To, To really shift from whoever is there, it starts with the people in power embracing that it is their norms that have become dominant within the system. That's just what's true. Doesn't matter, you know, any anthropological study you go back to, that's what has happened. That's how we work as humans. And so to your point, Joel, as we think about, you know, like talking more like you, we first have to tap into what is unconscious bias. The system is built for the people in power. That's just how it's happened. And so if we all can actually agree, oh, there's ways I've learned to work in the system that I'm not even aware that I've learned. And that's part of what Shannon was talking about in terms of the way that we've, we've trained, you know, trained men and women from the very beginning. If we can say there's ways of working and we can help people safely tune in to what's happening there and what the positive and potentially negative consequences are of the normal ways we're working and not make it a blame game and not be like you've created the old boys club, but create this way that we're all gaining awareness. That's where you can begin to see people safely change, right? And so really solidly good unconscious bias training helps all of us see where we've adopted some of some of this thinking. I remember being in a training once and the woman openly admitted, she said, you know, one of the first times I looked at my my gender unconscious bias is I got on an airplane. I was surprised to see a female pilot, right? Like those are things that can be born into us. There's Mm -hmm. that old joke we've all heard of man is with his son. They get in a terrible accident. They arrive at the hospital and the surgeon says, I cannot operate on this boy. It's my son. How is that possible? The surgeon is his mother, Ah. right? Wait a minute. It could be a stepdad. Could be it could a be a stepdad. stepdad. It could be his gay dad, right? It's it's an old joke. We're in yes. a very, you know, fluid, beautiful world today that's incredibly inclusive. But that, you know, the joke's origin is around 
gender bias. And so if we can acknowledge like, yeah, power comes with a set of ways that we behave and let's make those really explicit, then we can begin to have shared conversation, like you're saying, Joel. And I don't, I think that while emotion is certainly important and an important thing that we need to to talk about, it's also just, oh, I might accidentally be doing microaggressions, even if I don't see myself as someone who's aggressive, even if I know I'm actually not biased and I love having female employees, colleagues, bosses. Or one man telling another man, dude, no, that's not cool. Like that doesn't happen enough either. So I think having men understand that whole dynamic will help each other as well. One of the great discussions we've had doing this show is with Torn Ellis, black man influencer in this in this uh, community. We asked him, what can we do to help as two middle-aged white guys? And he said, speak up. When you see bullshit, call bullshit. I think the same goes for uh, women in the workplace as well in this example. If I connect that back to your point though, because I wasn't advocating obviously for men crying in the in the workplace, but it does end up with a certain amount of vulnerability. And in that moment, you're making yourself vulnerable. You're monitoring yourself. There's a self-awareness that that thing was uncomfortable and you're stepping into a space that you weren't invited to step into. And that can be really scary. And so there's this vulnerability that is sort of like a, a precursor in a way to us being able to have these authentic conversations. The other sort of call to action for that allyship, though, is tapping into that tapping into that vulnerability again in different environments. So like one of the DEI leaders that I was just talking about said, you know, I got out of just having conversations with all sort of the traditional allies, which we can talk more about. And she said, and I curated a group of white guys who are in leadership positions. But my job there is to like create that safe space for them to ask the vulnerable questions. I mean, I think we all know that even even myself as I'm leading this DEI exploration, like I have to own that I have nerves about maybe stepping in it or saying it the wrong way. My intentions are good, but that's not always enough. We have to like be curious and willing to admit like, oh, I'm sorry that that thing that I thought was okay is offensive to you and listen and take that in. But again, there's an emotional ability to regulate there that helps us through this process. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Well, there are, I mean, there are instances, and I would say many, where, you know, guys like us, we sit back and we're like, well, looks like we've been the problem. We need to shut the hell up and just sit down. Right. And so therefore you don't get those individuals who could prospectively be great allies, but they're, they're more pushed off into the corner. And they, I think, extract themselves from the situation more than anything else. What do we do in, in trying to evolve a workplace, which literally is still 1950s type of punch the clock, come in. You know, We've just recently been able to talk about remote and hybrid because of a damn pandemic. But how do we start to take this 1950s kind of like thought process, madmen process and move it? How do we do that? Because every time we do, we, we spend millions of dollars, billions of dollars, 
every year in DEI turning. It's not doing anything. We're seeing barely any outcomes. So uh, money's being spent, but we're not seeing progress. What the hell do we do? As I have these conversations, I think it's there's there's the two sides and there's the call to action for the men to lean in more, right? It's really easy to take two steps back. And, and mm-hmm. I don't know how to fix that exactly. As we talk with Catalyst about creating any kind of change, right? So this is the work that we do. We work with these innate change makers who see better visions of the future and can't stop themselves from moving into action to realize that better vision. Um, and no matter what kind of change you're making, you know, I've increasingly been talking about the emotional labor of change. If you're in an organization and you have a sort of big, bold, audacious vision and the organization is resistant to it, you have to be really clear about how much emotional labor and your own energy you're willing to put in to move the needle at all. Or you could scale back your vision and and maintain some more of your own energy because you're like, you're closer aligned to what they want. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be comfortable with that. The emotional labor of change agents doing DEI work, I think, is 10x because everyone is going into their corners and not knowing how to, like, uh, being afraid to step in it, not knowing how to be a good ally, not knowing how they might be contributing to it with that unconscious bias, et cetera. So it's sort of a dual call to action. It's like people who are allies and, and on the DEI leadership track, like, be, you know, you're going to have to recognize that you're going to need to the emotion, do the emotional leadership. So how do you create a community and places where you can recharge safely? And then on the other side, we just need more people to, to lean into being vulnerable to have those challenging conversations. Chad mentions zero progress, but I want to throw some numbers at you guys and, and you guys live this every day. For every man, almost two women are attending college in the United States. Uh, 70% of high school valedictorians are women. Over 50% of grads are women. Almost 60% of professional degrees are gotten by women. And even at MIT, 47% of the degrees are obtained by women. In 1995, we had zero CEOs that were women in the Fortune 500. And today we have roughly 10%. Is that progress or not? Yes. Okay. Then what? what's the disconnect from the valedictorian to I'm going to get the hell out of the workplace? How do we bridge that gap or, or can we? Can I come back to that question, Joel? Sure. Because I, I loved Chad's question and I have five calls to action, not for you guys <laughs> to do all of them. Like hand pick, and then we'll talk about the gap, I promise. Okay. So it's like, here's a menu, a menu, not a like everything. One, if you sit in an organization, ask folks in your leadership, what are our statistics around diversity? How do we measure them? How do we know they're working? Just ask questions because the more that leadership hears these questions, the more they think people are serious about it. That Mm -hmm. takes almost no work, right? So it's like set yourself a goal once a week, ask some leader in the organization about what's happening with diversity, but, you know, getting a little deeper in a meaningful way. Number two, something else you can do. Take some training on unconscious bias. And there's so many great resources like Just watch a TED Talk. There are amazing TED Talks on unconscious bias. Go to Coursera. Go to LinkedIn. Make yourself aware. Begin to make notes of where your unconscious bias pops up, right? Because when we're really honest with ourselves, we see it everywhere. Man, I lock my doors in certain neighborhoods. That is embarrassing for me to say out loud. And that totally happens for me. Like, total unconscious bias that happens for me. Number three, name it. You already said this, Joel, and I love it. Name it if you see things happening, right? Call it out and be like, hey, dude, that's not cool. Or wow, that felt that felt strange to me. What was happening for you? And you can name it to you know the person. You can name it aloud. You can name it in different ways. Number four, remember, this is a menu. You don't have to do all of them. Mentor women. 
statistically women hear more feedback about their confidence and their soft skills right? We have this dilemma of we are either too much of a bitch or we're too passive. And so we get a lot of feedback in that continuum. What men usually get mentored on are hard skills that are really valuable to the organization and help them them move up in really concrete ways. So mentor. All right. Fifth one, show up for activities around diversity, right? Take that. This is this. I put it on the list last because this one is maybe you already got a packed schedule. It's hard, but I already gave four other things that you can be doing. That's really, you know, they're somewhat easy. So that's my menu. And, and now, Tracy, Joel, Tracy, you should yeah. know that if there's a menu in front of me, I'm ordering everything. So <laughs> I love it. Dues, you know, he generally yes. goes toward the buffet. Yes. So, <laughs> yes is my answer to the menu. Yeah. We have the gender buffet for you there. Yes. <laughs> that's right. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All right. I want to say something, though, about Tracy just building onto that. I'm reading this great book about how to be an anti-racist. And I think that the same is true. I actually hadn't thought about it. Do we say anti-misogynist? Like, I don't know what the gendered version <laughs> of this is. Yes. But the, the position is really clear and I love it, which is like, there's no neutral here. Now, in the racist world, we can have, you know, racist thoughts and ideas. He moved away from, from categorizing a person as a thing because we move through different mm. things. And to Tracy's point, our prejudices might come up in some contexts more than others. But this goes back to if you're seeing something or you're participating in racist systems or racist policies, the only option to combat that is not to be neutral on it, but to be an anti-racist if we really want to see change. And I think the same is true for women. One of the things that Joel said I I want to hit because I think it is incredibly prevalent within our society is that, well, you know, we are seeing some change. Well, at the the rate of change that we are today, it's going to take 125 years to actually get to equity. Do you call that change that you will accept? Fuck no. Yeah. Has it changed? Yes, it's changed. Is it incremental? Is it almost worthless? Fuck yes, it is. So the question is, how do we actually make change so that we can move more toward equity in in our organizations without the government having to step in like they have with salary transparency to actually force the issue. We're falling in traps left and right because we think we see progress, which really isn't, I mean, it's not really there and we're not going to see it in our lifetime. So what do we have to do? I saw the the menu. I get the menu. How do we not fall in these traps? This is a, this is my own personal opinion. I will say that out loud, but I mean, I think unregulated capitalism is destructive for humanity and society. So if we're expecting corporations to do this out of the goodness of their heart, I think we'll be waiting a long fucking time. I think that's right. (laughs) Okay. Does that mean that we should go to regulating how many people should be on the board of what color and what gender? No, I don't think so either. Shannon, interesting point. So we interviewed Cindy Gallup a couple years ago and I don't know if you know Cindy or her work, but she's pretty no nonsense. And one of her ideas was that if you're expecting the system to change, it's not. It's only going to change if we have more women founding companies, if we have more 
black men and women founding companies, more people of diversity. Agree, disagree, because I sort of agree with her. Like there need to be more government programs, more money into education or found, you know, people that are founding companies that are diversity. Like to me, trying to fix what's already there is going to, if not impossible, be really, really hard. And to Chad's point, you'll see incremental change and then everyone will point to that. But is it real change? Probably not. I think it's all the things, Joel. I mean, I think we need to look at the healthcare system. I think we need to look at like California actually has regulated board compositions, right? So well, in a few years, we'll have some statistics about how that's playing out. And you mentioned I Europe. Think, I mean, maternity leave and things like that in Europe. But what are you totally, guys seeing in because, Europe? I mean, but that's the other side. Like if the paternity was always even, then women could get more help in, in that place too. Yeah. My, my personal belief, and this is sort of my personal mission statement, is around the power that the largest multinationals have. They have more money than most governments. They transcend national borders. They employ more people than you know, the federal government can touch if we look at them collectively, right? So I am not giving up on, I think we definitely need more female founded, you know, people of color founded, sort of the, the marginalized people founding companies. But in order to sit on a billion dollars of profit and have meaningful impact at a systems level problem, I think we also need to be fixing the big, the big companies. And is that government that makes the biggest impact? Is it customers saying we demand this out of our public companies? I mean, the customer the customer thing is interesting, right? As part of our Catalyst Leadership Trust, we're actually looking at the impact of what up-and-coming customers are going to be demanding of large organizations. And in that community, we have a lot of C-levels from some of these really large companies. And this is alive for them. And it's alive on a lot of different levels, not just from a technology spec perspective, how they need to engage, but like what deeply do these new customers you know, care about? And certainly sustainability and equity are, are big factors in that. I have maybe a... a- a not popular perspective here. That's our show, baby. <laughs> Bring it. Bring we it love is. to okay, be unpopular. Ready. Change takes time. 125 years, Tracy. I'm not advocate, advocating for 125 years, but okay. you know okay. this is part of the work that Shannon and I do. That you know the title of our book, "Move Fast, Break Ship, Burn Out," is the idea that the natural change makers among us want to move so fast and we're doing it faster than people and systems are ready for. And that's how we're breaking shit. We're breaking relationships. We're getting ejected from organizations. We're burning out in the process. So I'm not saying that 125 years as a woman, as a a mother of a daughter, right? These aren't things that I'm saying, yeah, okay, we'll get there. But there's a reality of the adoption curve, right? There's a reality of the tipping points that happen. And something that has to happen as change is taking root is people have to see the benefit of it. So we're beginning to have really good data that show us, right? Between the work that I don't remember, Gina, the actress who really looks at women in Hollywood, you know, this work that Sheryl Sandberg does with Lean In together, obviously with McKinsey Report, like we're beginning to have really reliable, good data. We have amazing data on diversity that shows public companies that have diverse boards and leadership actually have a better financial return. And once you see those kinds of numbers, you're beginning to see organizations adopt it, not just out of the goodness of their heart, but because it actually makes the right financial sense for them to do it. We're doing it badly. We're doing it as a checkbox, right? We're kind of half-hearted because it's not where the focus is for most companies. And so as we're going through this change curve and as the adoption has to take hold, women are leaving and they're starting their own companies and they're demonstrating the power they can have. And they're finding organizations that are more flexible and actually understand the power that women can bring so they don't have to fight the fight. 
white, right? That's what the statistics in the, in the report show us, but it's happening. Yes. I want us to do more. Yes. I want more women led businesses. Shannon and I are a woman led business. I totally agree, Tracy. And that was something I was going to bring up earlier because humans also, our brains can't understand exponential change. And the beginning part of an exponential curve feels really fucking slow. <laughs> but you do hit this tipping point, if you, especially if you have all of those things in the system that becomes the flywheel. So I, I totally agree with that part. I have a question for you guys, though. All right. So as white dudes, what are your answers to some of these problems? Get involved. I think right out of the gate, not taking the easy way out and extracting yourself from the conversation, actually getting in, asking the the dumb questions uh, and being a real advocate. I think it's really easy to feel uncomfortable, but guess what? As a white dude, I don't know what uncomfortable feels like compared to a female in a boardroom or a person of color in a boardroom or something of that nature. So I just need to suck it the fuck up as and drive on as we've told everybody else to do, right? So it's kind of like we're starting to feel what everybody else around us yes. has felt for years. And now we're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to get like out it. of this. I don't like yeah, it. I, I don't yeah. like this. So I think we just need to stop taking the easy way out. We need to actually get involved and it's going to be uncomfortable and that's good because that's what changes uncomfortable i think calling bullshit when you see it uh is something that i have more awareness of i think to your point tracy as well is you know i have a daughter 13 years old and i'm i'm incredibly aware of not micro aggressing her i guess uh <laughs> you know pointing out where leadership that women can be ceos that women can be leaders of countries um and and where i see it in my own life to to highlight that I, just as a parent with a 13 year old i know that my mother as a 13 year old the world and the opportunities that she had are much different than what my daughter uh her perception of the world and the opportunities that she has and if you look at progress i can tell you my mom had a much more closed view of what her her life was going to be like than my 13 year old daughter today so to me i have to be a champion for her to say Women are awesome. They're leading companies. You know, when I see a startup that's a cool idea, I'm like, look at what this, you know, this woman is doing. Uh, I want to point out and highlight to her that women kick ass. And if I can help her and I'm a man saying women are awesome, to me, that is the ultimate gift that I can give to the world if I'm getting in touch with my emotional side here on this podcast, which I think I can. We haven't made you cry though, Joel. <laughs> oh, it's coming. It's coming, Shannon. If I can elevate her, you know, to me, I've, I've done my job. You know, I don't work for a Fortune 500. You know, I'm not in a position to make any sort of big, big swings from that perspective. But if I can make a difference, you know, in my daughter's life, to me, that's kind of what I, I really focus on. Yeah, we're a couple of saps, to be quite frank. That are, I think, and Joel might might disagree, but I think our favorite commercial, like Super Bowl commercials, is oh, that God. Audi commercial with the dad and the the <laughs> daughter, and she's racing. They keep saying you can't do it, and and yeah. he's like there, and she does, and I mean, it's just one of those things where I have two daughters as well, right? Yeah. So it's like I want for like, them. What am I supposed to tell her? She's not going to make as much as a man. Yeah. What am I yeah. supposed to, you know, like yeah? And it's like no, fuck no, and I'm not going to stand for that, right? And, and that's where I think we have to be as white dudes, but we've always just kind of like faded into the, into the woodwork when it became uncomfortable. And and I see her falling into, I guess, the cultural trappings of you're a woman, this is how you're supposed to act. And anytime I can pull her back to like, no, you don't have to take that. You don't have to just do what someone says because you're a female, like get out of that stereotype because you don't have to fall into that trap. I think I'm finding myself do that more and more with my daughter. 
If I had one more call to action for people, I think it would be, you know, thinking deeply about the equality versus equity. You're going back to the numbers, right? And it's like, if you all start from different spaces behind the starting line, then an equal race is not going to be equal. And so equity is going back to the numbers that you were talking about and saying, look, when we're looking for a board position, we're looking for a woman and our traditional um, sort of you know, criteria meant that they had to have C-level experience at a large public company. That funnel's really small because of all of the micro decisions that were made before that. And so getting to equity is thinking deeply about where can we lift someone up where we know they'll still be able to do the job. We might need to be able to give them a little bit more support to fill in those gaps, but we're committed to the diversity and the equity. Tracy's clapping, by the way, for for listeners that can't see, <laughs> Call that. I didn't get a Joel. I didn't get a Joel clap though. <laughs> it takes me a while to catch up, Shannon, and Chad will mm-hmm. attest to that. And that is Tracy Lovejoy and Shannon Lucas, co-founders of Catalyst Constellations. Chad, another one in the can. And I don't know about you, but I'm a little smarter and a little more in touch with my feminine side. <laughs> we out. We out. Wow! Look at you. You made it through an entire episode of the Chad and Chase podcast. Or maybe you cheated and fast-forwarded to the end. Either way, there's no doubt you wish you had that time back. Valuable time you could have used to buy a nutritious meal at Taco Bell, enjoy a pour of your favorite whiskey, or just watch big booty Latinas and bug fights on TikTok. No, you hung out with these two chuckleheads instead. Now go take a shower and wash off all the guilt. Let's save some soap, because you'll be back. Like an awful train wreck, you can't look away. And like Chad's favorite western, you can't quit them either. We out. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.